Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, it's been a very long time coming, but here we are on the day after the general election. We've seen many results come in. There are still some that haven't haven't, and there are still some races that are up in the air, both here in Georgia and across the country. We're going to talk about all that and more very quickly. I'll mention to all of you out there who are regular fans of Political Rewind, as we did yesterday, we're going to do a live show again today at 2 o'clock instead of our usual uh, tape version of the morning show because we want to make sure you are completely up to date on what's happening in the election. So let's get right to the conversation. Um, I know at least one of us on the panel today was up all night. That would be Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I almost, Greg, feel bad that we asked you to make sure you'd be on the show today. But how could we do the show without you? I've been on Wednesday shows, I think, now for five years. Yeah, running, that's so exactly it right. Is, it is a tradition, so there's no way I can miss this, Bill. Well, and I assume you've already been on your other job, uh, which is doing MSNBC commentary It's this morning as well. My first hit was 5 a.m., oh. so, yeah. but I was already up, so it didn't matter. Well, I consider it a privilege that we still count in your book, Mr. Bluestein. Thanks for yeah. uh, being here today. Audrey Haynes joins us, political science professor at the University of Georgia. Audrey, I suspect you were up very, very late as well. That's just who you are. I was up late, and then I would uh, go to sleep, and then I would wake up, and I would check results, and then I would snooze a little bit more, and then I would wake up, um, and then I would check them, and and then, of course, I was up early, and uh, I, feel, I feel full of energy today because I had so many students out there at, at the parties and, you know, working, and, you know, whatever your outcome was, boy, was it an energized election yesterday. Yeah, I mean, it, it was. You're right. Um, uh, Amy Steigerwald's back with us. Uh, Amy, I'm assuming that you, too, had students who were engaged politically in this race. Amy, of course, is a political science professor at Georgia State University and the associate uh, chair of the political science department. Hi. Hi. Yes, we had students all over. Uh, GSU certainly was doing a whole bunch of get out the vote efforts that were nonpartisan. And then there were also students involved in sort of more partisan races as well. But I was sort of seeing them all over, you know, handing out stuff, trying to make sure to remind people that, you know, when polls were closing and it was, you know, terribly exciting time. Um, and we're also joined today by Adrian Jones, professor of political science uh, and director of pre-law program at uh, Morehouse uh, College. Adrian, um, for those listeners who have been listening to the show for a very long time, they know that we used to have uh, – we used to call the political science uh, folks on the show the A-team because it was Alan Abramowitz, who, by the way, will be on the show this afternoon, Amy Steigerwald, Audrey Haynes, and um, – Andre Gillespie. And Andre Gillespie. And now, Adrian – you join uh, the A-team. Thanks Woo! for being here today. Fantastic. Sounds like I'm getting a shirt. <laughs> we should probably have them made up. All right, Greg Bluestein, uh, let's start with the race that um, 
we can, I, I suppose, in a way, talk about relatively quickly because it's decided. It wasn't terribly late last night uh, that Stacey Abrams called Brian Kemp to say that uh, she congratulated him and conceded uh, the race. In fact, why don't we listen to a very you know, brief uh, portion of uh, Stacey Abrams' concession speech. And, and I think this is kind of important because we know for a very long time she has been criticized for not formally conceding in 2018. So here's what, at least at the beginning of her remarks to her crowd last night, here's the subdued Stacey Abrams. It is good to be here in this moment, surrounded by your love and support. And let me begin by offering congratulations to Governor Brian Kemp. Um, Greg, I, it was an emotional night for Stacey Abrams, and I thought that was the beginning of, of uh, what turned out to be a rousing speech about her intentions to go on fighting for the causes she believes in. Yeah, you know, it was very striking because not only four years ago did she not concede, but um, the state Democratic Party and others, uh, you know, put an asterisk by Governor Kemp's name. So it was very, I think it was very symbolic that she emphasized the word governor right there, right? Mm -hmm. Because she would call him Brian Kemp uh, for a long time. Um, and, and in that case, she was going over and beyond to to congratulate him on his victory. And I'll, I'll note as well, that 11 o'clock call that she made to, to concede to Kemp, the personal call she made to the governor, um, was made before the networks even called the race, yes. mm -hmm. you know, long before the AP called the race. And it wasn't until after the call that NBC News called the race. So I, I thought the timing of that was very consequential as well. Well, Amy, let's not bury the lead here. Um, uh, Governor Kemp did win by a margin of just about eight points. Mm -hmm. uh, the polling suggested all along, AJC, uh, Georgia News Collaborative polling, suggested that it was going to be at least a seven-point margin. We always said these are snapshots, not predictions, but they turned out to be pretty accurate. Let's uh, listen to Brian Kemp, and then we'll all talk about that. We took our campaign to voters who normally don't support Republicans because no matter where you live or what neighborhood you are from, hardworking Georgians want their families safe, their streets safe, and they want good-paying jobs and a quality education for their children. We made sure that Stacey Abrams is not going to be our governor or your next president. Well, that last remark just tells you how fiercely that campaign was fought. Those two fought against one another and Kemp just couldn't resist. No, but more broadly, he makes an interesting point, which I think we do see sort of also the difference of his lead, let's say, than in the other ones. He tried to broaden the tent of who he was appealing to. I mean, it was sort of really in stark contrast to 2018, where he was still trying to shore up Republican support. This time he had it. And so he broadened it. And we saw the power of incumbency and the ability to point to what he got to do as governor, including right doing cost of living raises, sending uh, those rebate checks. Um, I think we also still continue to see, though, that the state is – you know, I, I don't know. Do we want to call it center right? Do we want to call it purple with more of a reddish tinge? <laughs> right. Because it's still not that it's this like overwhelming. You know, these races are are really close. Um, and the final thing that we saw, which I think, again, aided Kemp and we'll probably talk about as we get to is um, 
Kemp was not really supported by Trump and those that aligned much more closely either are, well, facing a runoff or, you know, one more barely. I mean, I know he got the endorsement at the very end there, but I'm not. Adrian? But even so, I mean, I feel as if we're thinking about Trump not, um, you know, supported candidates, but in fact, Trump assisted Kemp and Raffensperger Mm -hmm. in this race, right? He changed the Mm -hmm. tenor of this particular race, especially in relationship to Stacey Abrams, right? It He suddenly they were... (laughs) Uh, you know, protectors of the electorate, making sure that the popular vote got through um, in the face of Trump. He also, which I've said before, he's done an excellent job of staying out of the Trump fray. So, you know, I'm going to attribute those wins in part to the former president because he, you know, provided them a platform that worked. Audrey, uh, you have your applied uh, politics program, which trains your students for jobs in politics. Among them, they could go on to become political consultants. And it strikes me that the Kemp campaign is a textbook example of how to run a campaign, a disciplined campaign. You stay on message. You have a laser focus on just a very few issues. And I think to some extent that contrasts with the Abrams campaign, which had a scattering of many issues. I don't know. I mean, one, I know that she's enthusiastic about changing the landscape for Georgians in a very positive way, but it also felt at times like maybe they were looking for a message they could really land on. But Kemp, to give him credit, really ran an extraordinarily disciplined campaign. And I would argue that the nature of the times helped him because You know, if you think about any campaign and messaging, and and I would talk about Abrams in particular, um, campaigns are dynamic. If inflation had not risen and if that were such, such, you know, not a major part of the environment right now, uh, you know, maybe her messaging might have been more effective. But one of the arguments is, and this is the difference between the Kemp campaign and Abrams campaign, and both of them will talk about it. The Kemp campaign is very lean. Um, you know, we had Jay Walker in class, who is one of the major strategists uh, for um, the Kemp campaign. And when you listen to him talk, he's looking at the tracking polls every single day. And they did keep him on a very, well, Kemp is a very disciplined candidate. And he had a message that really fit right from the nature of the times. He was successful. He's giving people money. The economy is on their mind. He is an incumbent. Um, partisanship in the states on his side, um, and he's viewed as a, a high-quality candidate. For Abrams, she had many more hurdles to overcome, national trends um, with losing at, you know, midterm races, so, you know, Democrats down a little bit in terms of mobilization, but inflation, which is, you know, she could have talked about the economy more. That was a part of her message, but it sort of got lost. Um and partisanship in the state uh, went against her uh, a bit too. So, um, and Biden, right? So Biden is not just unpopular with Republicans. Biden is unpopular with Democrats. And that was not helpful. Greg, you filed on the uh, Kemp victory. Uh, Your headline was, I think, from booze to a blowout, how Brian Kemp beat Stacey Abrams again. And here's, I'll read back to you your words and then ask you to expand on them. Throughout his rematch against Democrat Stacey Abrams, 
Kemp's core message was a fairly simple one. The governor was helping Georgians cope with rising prices he blamed on the, quote, Abrams-Biden administration. He didn't avoid questions about other issues, but he took every chance he could to pivot those answers into attack on Democrats for decades-high inflation. You're right. When we asked Governor Kemp, let's say, about abortion, he'd say, you know, I, I stand by my my legislation, uh, and yet he He'd go, he'd go to make that core economic argument. When we asked him about Donald Trump, he'd say, I, I won't say a bad word about Donald Trump, um, uh, but I'm fighting to help Georgians combat these rising prices. And what Trey Kilpatrick, Governor Kemp's chief of staff, told me is essentially when voters tell you their number one issue is, is the economy, you listen. And they knew going into that that no matter what else happened, and certainly they had other issues. They talked about crime. They talked about they attacked Abrams over all sorts of things. So there was other issues that that color this campaign, but the economy was the was their go-to issue. And when reporters or when we were, were talking about it, we could pin down a core message from Governor Kemp. And you know it was a little harder to do that, Stacey Abrams, because she had so many other issues. This is not necessarily a bad thing, but she had so many policy issues, and it certainly energized her base. But it was harder to say the one thing that she wanted to do because there were so many different things that she wanted, expanding Medicaid, legalizing casino gambling, making a more equitable economy, combating climate change. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Um, and Governor Kemp, you know, was very minimalist when it came to what he wanted to do in a second term. He issued very, very few campaign promises. We wrote about it. We criticized him for it, frankly. Um, but he didn't feel the need to do uh, to throw to out more because he ran mostly on that first term agenda. What did you make of that little shot that he could not resist taking? You know, their rivalry goes back so long and they don't like each other at all. And it's it's not this, you know. They're not two random candidates who just wound up in a, a race against each other. They they knew each other for a long time, and and, and probably it's accurate to say they hate each other. So I don't think he could resist that knock. And I also noted he also uh, had a more oblique knock at Donald Trump. Yeah. That was the first time I've ever heard Governor Kemp criticize Donald Trump in that way by saying – he usually talks about all the criticism he, t- he took for – uh, lifting economic restrictions early in the pandemic. And I've never heard him mention the former president, Donald Trump, as being one of the chief critics. But last night he did. Last night he said current past and present uh, presidents. So he, he he didn't say Donald Trump's name, but that was certainly a shot at Donald Trump. All right. Um, l- let's let's move on. Um, and we certainly can circle back uh, as we talk about other election results, because I think Kemp had an impact on uh, the rest of the Republicans on uh, uh, the ballot, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But, 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 Greg, uh, we really <laughs> here we go again. Uh, it looks as if we are going to see a uh, runoff between Walker and Warnock. I'm looking at the latest totals that I have, and I I found throughout the night last night that the New York Times was running ahead of. AP running ahead of even the yeah. Secretary of State's office. So I'm looking at their figures. They show the race right now. Warnock with 49.42%, Walker with 48.52%. Uh, there's only a matter of about 30-plus thousand votes separating the two of them, but Chase Oliver has over 2% of the vote. So, Greg, uh, it's not very likely that either Walker or Warnock are going to get over the 50% plus one threshold, uh, although no. there are still a lot of votes out there. 
there's still a lot of votes and there's still a mathematical possibility is the way I was just, it was described to me. But I'll tell you this, I mean, both these candidates, both these campaigns are right now at this very moment gearing up for a runoff. I mean, just a few minutes ago, Herschel Walker's campaign manager, Scott Paradise, tweeted, time to go to work, Team Herschel. So, um, it, it, you know, I, I think maybe by today there will be some sort of network call that there's not uh, a, you know, an opening for either of these candidates to win this outright. And we'll go full force into the runoff phase. Well, uh, Audrey, to that point, uh, early this morning, I was seeing anti-Warnock commercials from uh, PACs supporting Walker on TV the morning after the election. They, they had already – this means they had already bought time, blocked out time, anticipating the possibility at least of a runoff. Now, you can always cancel time if that had been necessary, but th- they had planned – for the possibility. Yes, and that's a smart campaign. I would venture that the Warnock campaign has been planning for that as well. Um, And, you know, it's going to be interesting. I think uh, I listened to the Politically Georgia podcast this morning, and Greg and Patricia were talking about the scenarios regarding a a runoff. And if the rest of the Senate outcomes uh, emerge and we see that Republicans come out with a a majority that doesn't require uh, Warnock or, I mean, that doesn't require Walker, um, then, you know, maybe um, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to mobilize everybody and, and people like Warnock. But I would want to, I want to mention too, that one of the things that stands out for Warnock, candidate quality for Herschel Walker was probably one of the reasons that we see this dampening. It was so clear how other Republican candidates, particularly Kemp, were running much uh, ahead of Walker throughout the night, right? Um, and and that that is, you know, that is clear. Um, but also Warnock worked in Georgia. Warnock was here. Warnock really presented himself. I, I honestly think that Stacey had spent more time focused on Georgia over the last few years and talking about all the things she had done um, and focused more on Georgia, she probably would have come out a little bit more ahead as well. Adrian, uh, we've pointed out on this show uh, a number of times how Warnock and Walker each have reflected what they've done uh, in their careers. Uh, Warnock has often behaved on the campaign trail like the pastor he is. Walker often presents himself like the former football star who's out there to bash heads. And and I'd like to extend that to remarks that both of them made to their uh, supporters at their rallies last night. Let me start with uh, Raphael Warnock coming out. I think it was around 2 a.m. Greg can correct me if I'm wrong. And here's how Warnock presented himself as he told folks the night was not completely over with. I may be a a little tired for now, (laughs) but whether it's later tonight or tomorrow or four weeks from now, we will hear from the people of Georgia. We will hear from the people who have given me the great honor of my life, representing you in the United States Senate, and we will move forward together. I remain as committed to this work as I have ever been, and I look forward to continuing on that journey together over the next six years. And then Adrian, here's Herschel Walker. I don't come to lose. 
And, uh, and I told you, he's going to be tough to beat. He's going to be tough to beat, but let me tell you what, he got the wrong Georgia here, don't he? So I want to tell y'all, if you can hang in, hang in there a little bit longer, just hang in there a little bit longer, because something good, it takes a while for it to get better. And it's going to get better. Adrian? I'm really excited to see, you know, what Kemp is going to do in relationship to Walker um, going forward, because um, it's clear that Warnock, as the incumbent, as someone who's presented himself, who's worked on a bipartisan basis, as someone who has um, pulled strongly, I think correctly, as someone who can handle the job and is a quality candidate, um, you know, I think it's a toss up uh, whether or not people will support uh, Warnock in December. And, you know, we see that the ballots for Walker are lower than the other candidates. So that says to me that there's some potential for some real support for Warnock. Of course, we're still talking about the balance of power in the Senate, which is going to matter. Um, so we're going to need to know exactly what that looks like. That could really um, bring Walker some fuel and um, support. But ultimately, I feel as if Georgians understand uh, that the incumbent Warnock, in terms of quality, is probably a better uh, choice for Georgia, particularly if he's interested in working across the aisle. Amy? It looks likely we're going to run, go to a runoff. And that will once again, much like in 2020, make Georgia the epicenter of the political universe because there will be no other races. And what could make so number one is going to give more attention. It will definitely heighten sort of the normal partisan attachments, which, as Adrian intimated, we saw sort of people not doing right. We we really saw ballot roll on where people skipped the top of the ticket, which you don't normally see, and instead voted down ballot. Um, and so that could potentially differ. The other side of it, though, is more attention is going to mean really more attention to Herschel Walker and more expectations. Um, mm -hmm. He is likely going to need to finally uh, perhaps try to broaden his base um, and, and and talk to those outside of his base. Um, he's going to have way more pressure to show up to debates, to answer questions about policy, and it'll be harder to dodge because there are Literally no other races like this is it. We've gone from the, you know, 500 or well, what is 435, you know, congressional races and the 33 Senate races and all of that down to one. And so that is going to also put, I think, more pressure there. And that will be interesting to see how he responds. So, Greg, as as Amy and Adrian are talking, I've pulled out my calculator because my math is weak. How many how many how, how did Walker underperform compared to? Brian Kemp, and for that matter, other down-ballot uh, Republicans in the governor's race, uh, I mean, compared to uh, Brian Kemp, he underperformed by 100,000-plus votes, maybe much more? Yeah, you know, this, uh, and, and this was the split-ticket trend in real life, right? I mean, we've been talking about these polls that show these these uh, Warnock-Kemp voters, and, you know, there there is a segment of Republicans who say, hey, that once, once the rubber meets the road, those those Republicans who are kind of squeamish about voting for Walker, they're going to come home and they're going to vote for Walker. Well, some of them might have, but a lot of them didn't. Um, and a lot of them ended up voting for Senator Warnock or voting for the Libertarian, who got that 2%, or just skipping that altogether. And we saw in the AP 
exit poll that, that you know, about 8% of, of, um, of Kent voters were voting for Warnock. And vice, you know, when you contrast that, very, very few statistically insignificant numbers were going the other way of, of, uh, of Warnock supporters um, backing uh, 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 sorry, of Walker supporters backing Abrams. Um, there's a lot more I'd like to talk with our panel about in terms first of the Senate race and then other uh, results of last night's elections. But let's do this. Let's get the first break of the show out of the way and come back with more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. The indefatigable Greg Bluestein uh, joins us as he does on Wednesdays. You know, I was up late too, Greg. I can still pronounce indefatigable. I'm not that tired yet, <laughs> but you really are that. Um, we're also joined by Amy uh, Steigerwald, Adrian Jones, and Audrey Haynes. Um, I want to make a quick uh, note. Tomorrow late afternoon from 4 o'clock to 6 o'clock, I'm going to be leading an in-person panel discussion at the Candler School of Theology over at the Emory University campus. If you're in the uh, metro Atlanta area, it's going to be uh, me, uh, DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurmond, uh, Eric Tannenblatt, the Republican uh, insider, and uh, Emory University's Andre Gillespie. And uh, we'd love to have you join us. There's plenty of room, I'm told, there. If you go to my Twitter, at NIGUTB, N-I-G-U-T-B, you'll see a link for how you can register for free. It should be really a fascinating conversation. Okay, let's get back to it. Audrey Haynes, uh, so we think... It's two things. Number one, when I see how close really both Walker and uh, Warnock came to breaking uh, 50%, but but Warnock ahead on that one, it does remind me of how close David Perdue came to going over 50% in his last Senate race and then what happened to him in the runoff uh, that he lost. Yeah, you know what? I think one of the things that we're learning from these campaigns is that, you know, often our um, while our general trends are often confirmed in individual campaigns and uh, the talent of the candidate, the talent of their team, the nature of the times can really impact the dynamics. And, and, and I would argue that, you know, uh, Purdue was not always that great of a campaigner. Um, for example. Uh, so we'll see. Warnock is a really good campaigner, and Herschel Walker, um, for all of the baggage that he has had, um, you know, and and the work of his team has actually proven to be pretty successful. I don't think very many people uh, in, in politics could have survived the scandal after scandal after scandal uh, that showed up. And, you know, part of that, too, is the headwinds. We're talking about um, one of the things that John Sines and uh, Lynn Vaverick and a number of people are talking about is we're very polarized right now. 
You can see that there's a lot of negative partisanship where you hate the other party more than you love your own party, so you hold your nose. You've got this dynamic of controlling the Senate, um, but and, and it's also very calcified now. There's not a lot, and, and Greg will attest to this when um, they talk about Georgia politics, they talk about inelasticity, right? But there is still this group um, in the middle uh, that you know, can make or break a campaign and mobilization, who turns out is really big. So we don't really know what will happen. I, you know, I would, we ha- we'll have some predictions, but we don't really know. Greg, I want to turn to you because there are, you really watch these campaigns from the inside. Um, and but to comment on Audrey's point, the Walker people, they changed campaign uh, strategists sometime, what, last spring or summer? I mean, Walker was floundering. And they made a big change. I think the uh, National Republicans came down and said, you got to bring, we got to have better people in here. And that really was a turning point for Herschel Walker, despite the ongoing revelations about um, horrendous treatment of women, abortions, and the like. That, that team kept him on track. Yeah, and it, it didn't really all those all those revelations didn't really budge the poll numbers. Um, you know, the polls have been very accurate in, in my view, at least, showing it in the mid to high forties all throughout, and now we're in the high forties right now. Uh, but no, what, one of the things that those new strategists did, where they reinforced, is that Herschel Walker should start having events and make mm-hmm. it public rather mm-hmm. than all these private events. No, I never understood it. Um, you know, they they can still they trust me. They still are tightly controlling these big big public rallies. He has not done a scrum with the media in weeks. And when we pointed that out in the Jolt newsletter, they got very upset but still have not held a scrum. Uh, but another thing they did was they refocused their message on uh, – it's a lot like Governor Kemp, but on Biden, Biden, Biden. And really, you know, before those strategies came down, it, it was, you know, all over the place. You'd go to events, and, and, you know, I literally would go to these town hall meetings, and he'd speak for an hour. Uh, and, the, and the crowd would start leaving. And they got him to a more tightly scripted, um, I've heard it now dozens of times, but stump speech um, that focuses a lot on how Senator Warnock votes with Biden 96% of the time. That's that core message. And, uh, and, and that made, at least in their view, they wanted to make this race a referendum on Joe Biden, whereas Senator Warnock wanted to make it a contrast between him and Herschel Walker, a, a race about character. Uh, Amy and then Adrian, I'd love to get your thoughts on, on the fact that we expect now uh, that next Tuesday, uh, Donald Trump has hinted pretty broadly that he's going to have a major announcement at Mar-a-Lago. It's, he's suggesting that he's going to announce his candidacy for president. Uh, hard to speculate, but you can't help but want to. What does that mean? For Walker and Wardock in a runoff four weeks from now on December 6th. So one of the big things is this is the first uh, runoff that we're really having, uh, you know, especially in a general election with the new system where it is much faster. Mm-hmm. Right. So we, we're, we're now down to the four weeks instead of uh, it was seven or eight previously. So it has to happen much faster. You've got to get everybody geared up. What we did see, though, in 2020 is I would argue one of the big shifts that actually happened between the general election and the runoff, particularly with David Perdue, is that he tied himself much more closely to Trump. Right. Trump really had sort of an overarching uh, presence within that race. We saw a lot of people not turn out due to that. 
Um, it spurred turnout on some sides and in other places it really depressed turnout. And so if it's coupled with that and if, right, again, that becomes this overarching presence in the race and those ties, that could have real ramifications here. I mean, there there's about 200,000 vote difference between uh, Herschel Walker and Brian Kemp. Right. We definitely saw right that, you know, people of, of where he's lost, losing that. We're also seeing there's less people who voted in the Senate race, just period, than in the governor's race, at least in the total so far. And so part of what he's going to have to do is try to convince the people who either voted for someone, right, didn't didn't vote or said, nope, I can't vote for you, even if I'm voting Republican down ballot, that, you know, perhaps control of the Senate is enough to overcome whatever concerns they have. But that's that's a lot to do in four weeks. So, um, Adrian, OK, so Herschel Walker played to the base throughout the campaign. His message was straight to the base, uh, <laughs> like Donald Trump in the way he ran his campaigns. Well, whereas, as we've talked about, Brian Kemp decided to expand the electorate and actually won considerable number of Democratic votes. So the question becomes, if Donald Trump is now running for president of the United States, does that energize the and if control of the Senate is up for grabs, does that energize Republicans, Democrats? How do we even begin to get a handle on all this? It's interesting. Um, I think I guess in, it seems to me that Walker needs a Trump. Right. I mean, I think that it does to some degree stimulate people. It might not work. But, um, you know, now Kemp is no longer at the top of the ticket. Um, it is the only race in town, right? So that leaves Walker sort of moralist without some um, Trump invective, I think, which, you know, could prove in his favor. Um, I think Democrats will be similarly uh, motivated. Uh, you know, Warnock is the incumbent. Um, he is a qualified candidate. Um, Walker is not. And so I think that there's some good traction there to lean in to getting people to turn out um, to make sure that uh, Warnock gets the seat. I think it's ironic and interesting that these two black men are having this runoff um, because of the Georgia's majority uh, vote rule, right, which has um, racist <laughs> underpinnings designed to make it possible um, for a white candidate, you know, who can survive the <laughs> the initial run, um, to, you know, to get that um, that groundswell of support. Um, and, you know, if you're making Walker the standard bearer for the GOP, you know, arguably this would work in his favor. Um, we know, of course, that, you know, the majority vote rule doesn't necessarily work in the same way that it did in the 1960s and uh, 70s. But I think it's worth mentioning I think that you know, where we are. I love that historical note because it's precisely correct that there was a time when the runoff rule was intended to help white candidates win in general elections. Audrey, what's your sense of the Trump factor? Does he energize the base as Walker has uh, done? Or uh, does he anger, does he really get those independent voters out there to make sure that Trump doesn't have a success in the state? Again, it's all speculation, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. I think that Trump's effect is that he mobilizes both bases in the sense that, you know, um, mm -hmm. if, if he announces and uh, comes out and is, you know, very vigorous in his um, participation and visibility here in the state, uh, it's going to make more Democrats turn out. Um, and it's also going to probably make uh, a lot of the MAGA voters. 
I mean, Herschel is sort of interesting because remember, Herschel embraces Trump, but he often will say, I'm my own man. You know, I'm going to do what, I, what Herschel wants to do. Um, you know, so and, and voters hear what they want to hear. Right. Um, again, I think it's really going to depend on, you know, looking at the, the Senate itself. I mean, if if Democrats can win Pennsylvania, if they can win Arizona, which is likely to happen um, and then take Nevada. Georgia's not going to be as critical, right, because they'll have what they need to, to win. Uh, they'll have their majority in the Senate. Um, and so without that, I think there will be less um, mobilization of the Republicans because it won't matter quite as much. But if it is going to be determinant on this Georgia outcome, I think we're probably going to see Republicans outperform Democrats. Greg, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but I really would love to get your take on this. I'm presuming that uh, Trump, if Trump's just a distant figure who announces that he's going to run for president, that's one thing. But if he goes to the Walker folks and says, I'm coming in, as he's done in any number of other states, without a great deal of success, Trump had a really bad night last night. It's important to point that out. What happens? Yeah, you know, it's a good point, because, look, first of all, you know, when, in a runoff, um, it's a base motivation. They're not going to be spending as much time trying to reach out to, to the middle, to undecided, to swing voters, because they know that it's a lower turnout affair, period. And if they get the exact same group that came out y- yesterday to come out um, in four weeks, they win, right? I mean, the, the, so, so you know, we saw this in 2020 slash 2021 when it was basically a, a base affair and we could see this again although you know there could be some deviations in the strategy but one of the main reasons that donald trump was persona non grata was not necessarily because of herschel walker but it was because of the splash over he would have governor kemp would have to be in the mountains he'd have to be anywhere but donald trump It would be embarrassing for trump and for the georgia ticket and he was shown polls basically that showed that he would hurt not just kemp and chris carr and others who didn't want to necessarily be uh, campaigning with the guy who tried to defeat them, but he also could have hurt Herschel Walker in a race where they were still trying to go after the middle. But in a base motivating race, um, where and, the, and those two men go back 40 years, you know, they, this is not just some political friendship they have. They have a friendship that dates back to when Herschel Walker was was a recent. Uh, he just got out of the University of Georgia. Was playing in the pros for for Donald Trump's team. So uh, I. I I could imagine a scenario where Donald Trump does come down here and just energizes the base for Herschel Walker. And we won't see Chris Carr there. We won't see Brian Kemp there. We won't see a lot of those figures that he tried to oust a few months ago. Uh, but we will see, you know, the core of the, the MAGA base here in Georgia. There. Uh, before I, I take a final break and we move on from the potential Senate runoff, I, I don't have in front of me right now, Greg, and you may not either, uh, the uh, uh, a look at where we have precincts still out. But I'm assuming that uh, if it's anything uh, uh, like most elections, the, the ballot boxes that are out would tend to be in larger concentrated uh, city areas, which would tend to be Democratic. But we don't know that there are enough votes there to put Raphael Warnock over the top, right? Yeah, exactly. There's still tens of thousands of, of votes out, but and, and a, a number in Metro Atlanta, but he'd have to win a, I mean, there's a mathematical possibility, but we're not going to have to really win at a, at a big pace in order, in order to overcome, uh, well, not overcome, but over to cross the 50% threshold. Because he's ahead of Walker right now. He just has to, you know, 
uh, get over that 50% mark. Okay, let's do this. Let's get the final break of the show out of the way. We'll come back with more on Political Rewind, look at some of the other races that were decided overnight. Thank you all out there for being with us for this edition of Political Rewind. Quick reminder, again, we'll be live again at 2 o'clock because there will be more votes uh, rolling in uh, between now and then, and we want to keep you completely up to date. Greg Bluestein, Democrats really, really believed, especially after winning the White House in Georgia in 2020, the Ossoff-Warnock race in the runoff, they really thought this was a year that they could run candidates in down-ballot races and make an impact. I would personally say that the race that they were most hopeful of winning is Jen Jordan against Chris Carr. But, of course, they also had hoped that Charlie Bailey had some chances. Be win against uh, Brad Raffensperger was always an outside chance. But once again, Republicans have swept what we call the state constitutional offices. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that, you know, the pendulum is shifted back um, to Republican territory, but Georgia is still a very competitive battleground. And trust me, in 2024, we'll be hearing all sorts about about presidential candidates competing here. Um, But, you know, I think these down ticket races, it's so hard for them to get attention to the average voter. Um, You know, it it was basically suffocating news about Governor Kemp and Stacey Abrams. Senator Warnock, uh, Senator Warnock and Herschel Walker. I mean, that, that dominated, um, you know, of course, on shows like these, we talked about down ticket candidates, but your average Georgia voter wasn't really hearing much about them. And even when someone like Jen Jordan, I mean, she raised a lot of money. So did Chris Carr. It raised a type of money that in past election cycles would be eye popping. But you can't compete with Stacey Abrams or Brian Kemp when they're raising almost $200 million combined for the Senate races. And, you know, it just it sort of drowned them out. And so goes the top of the ticket, uh, as went the bottom of the ticket. And when you have Governor Kemp leading the way um, with 53 ish percent of the vote, Stacey Abrams only about 46. She could not she had no coattails and could not help out uh, the candidates uh, elsewhere on the ballot. Yeah, Audrey, it does feel like Kemp was a powerhouse in helping bring those Republicans in down ballot races across the finish line. Yes, I I would agree with that. And I think that it's important to note that, you know, Republicans also began matching some of the work that um, Abrams had done um, with some of the um, canvassing field work, mobilization work. And it'll be interesting. I'm having a conversation with Kelly Leffler next week for Mm. uh, an event, and we're going to talk about what um, Greater Georgia has done. And um, they really looked at those areas that Biden won by just a few percentage points and in there really hard trying to um, mobilize voters. I mean, even to the point I mentioned this on the show, looking at people who will be turning 18 in places that are a little bit more conservative. I mean, they had Excel sheets. And I would argue that around uh, the last go round, they were not as organized on the ground. Um, and I think that um, you know, uh, if she gets any credit for uh, helping this, this will uh, be beneficial to her. I know mm-hmm. that one of the things she has said is that she's going to also do kind of her own evaluation of the election uh, in terms of messages and voters. And um, that that could be a part of the calculation of how they did well. 
And I was just looking at county by county data a moment ago. And there, uh, in, in comparison to 2018, a lot of counties overperformed in terms of turnout. And some of them were red counties, too. And I'm, I'm not sure that was just, you know, anti-Stacey Abrams sentiment. I think that may just be mobilizing people um, to support a ticket. And when you reach out and, and say, please vote, and you have someone do it, they're more likely to turn out. So that is one of the parts of battleground Georgia is that both parties now um, learn from each other. And um, I, I would also want to point out, I think that the Democratic uh, ticket and the, and the field, um, they learned a lot from this experience. And overall, we might consider they did pretty well in terms of competition. Uh, the numbers, I would say, don't look as bad and they'll be back. Um, they'll learn from it. Yeah, so, I'm oh, sorry. I, no, no, I apologize for interrupting you. Um, yeah, I don't think there's much question that Georgia is a purpling state. Uh, this election doesn't prove otherwise at this point, but we're, it's going to be so between now and 2024. It's going to be fascinating to watch the dynamic as it moves forward. Adrian, national exit polls. It, it, this the red wave. And we're going to talk about national a lot more on the 2 o'clock show because we'll have more results from, from the western states by then. But um, the red wave has not materialized. And exit polls from any number of states show that what we had suspected might be true, that while the polling ahead of time showed that abortion had fallen down as a major concern of voters, the fact is in exit polls that we saw in a number of states – People were voting on abortion. They were voting on the threat to democracy. And so I mentioned that to put it in the Georgia context. Uh, Kemp was asked many times on the campaign trail if he won re-election, would he uh, uh, work for even more restrictive abortion uh, measures in uh, Georgia? Jen Jordan had said she, if she became attorney general, would not pursue people who violated the law. Um, I'm just wondering what we see. In, uh, Greg, do we have anything on how abortion played? I haven't seen the Georgia exit polls. Well, uh, it showed economy was by far the number one okay. issue for Georgia voters. Okay. Th thank you for that, because Adrian and a number of other states, it was abortion that really popped very high uh, up there on the list. I mean, abortion is definitely on the ballot this time, even though, you know, I feel like the media – was a wash in. It's not abortion. Of course, it's inflation. But I feel like in the state of Georgia that because of the results in 2020, um, you know, the GOP turns out, right? It motivates you when the demographics are changing, when there's a potential for the state to go blue, when it's been red for the last two decades, right? I think that that motivates um, the GOP to come out. I also think that um, the story is that, you know, some of the, the runoff was lost as a result of the former president's you know, contribution to keeping people at home. And um, so that this gave people an opportunity to be motivated to go out. We've got Kemp at the top of the ticket, um, all the attention there. And I mean, there's a reason to want to win red seats in a year like this. Um, I have to mention, too, though, that I think that we all have become more educated voters, which I'm pleased to see. Like, I get the impression that people spent some time understanding who the candidates were, right, and what these down ticket races are about, what the... Um, 
state offices mean, what they do. Um, and I think this is important both in Georgia and nationally. Wow. Well, that's an encouraging sign, if Adrian Jones is correct, Amy. I, I know you'd love to weigh in on all this, but I do want to, before the show is over, to get to one other race. And, and then you can go back, if you'd like, and add to the uh, subject we've already talked about. Uh, every incumbent running for Congress won re-election in Georgia. Uh, Republicans hoped they'd pick up the second district with Sanford Bishop. Uh, they didn't. Chris West lost. Uh, in the 14th district, uh, Marcus Flowers, the, I, I tweeted last night that the people who gave $10 million to Marcus Flowers in his effort to win against Marjorie Taylor Greene in a deep, deep red uh, district might just as well have piled all of those bills up on Marcus Flowers' front lawn and set fire to them because she won by an extraordinary margin. So the point is, though, the congressional and the Republicans did p- pick up the 6th district. Yes. So the other side of this, which is super important as we sort of continue forward, this was the first race after the new district lines were drawn all mm-hmm. over the country uh, due to the decennial census and redistricting. And what we see, which was sort of not a surprise, is that red districts in Georgia became redder and blue districts became yep. bluer. Right. So, I mean, there are right. I mean, Nikki Williams won by plus 65. Yep. Right. Uh Scott down in the 13th district one by plus 64. We've got plus 45 with Representative Clyde, right? I mean, these numbers sort of show that the districts are drawn in these ways. And that also contributes, I think, to sort of this view of it's not entirely right. The the, the red parts are red, the blue parts are blue, and it's mm-hmm. kind of this weird twist ice cream cone, right, <laughs> that it sort of merges at places and becomes a little purple. But it's also I sort of back – I think Adrian and a couple other people made this point of this hardening of the ties, the inelasticity, the partisan polarization, and also this um, sort of view of the other side as the enemy, the Good other point. Which has really sort of allowed, right, sort of moved us away from this ability to kind of compromise on policy and and to see it to to appeal across the way. And sort of the the issue, obviously, with a runoff is that you got to get your base to turn out first, right? If they don't turn out, you've lost, which means that you have to go after those voters first. And you don't really have in four weeks a lot of time to expand it out. And so we're going to see sort of, again, a hardening of that. Greg Bluestein, to close out the show today, I think one of the things that Amy said is so terribly important in these intensely polarized times, in these toxic political times, there are maybe half of the voters in this state who are going to see winners uh, in these elections as the enemy, not simply people who have a different point of view and philosophy. Yeah, and we had a, a team of reporters, as I know GPB did, interviewing voters at the polls on Tuesday, and over and over again, that was the theme, is that they want politicians who can bring unity, who can talk about where we get along, not where we are divided. And, you know, I hope the candidates, uh, maybe it's in vain, but I hope the candidates hear those please, because um, cause that's what so many voters want. You know, attack ads work for a reason, but they want that. Well, that will actually be an issue in the Senate runoff because Warnock will continue to hit on the fact that he has worked in a bipartisan way. We'll see if that's what voters uh, really want. All right. We are completely out of time uh, for today's show. My thanks to Jay Cook, Chase McGee, Victoria Evans-Cash, Natalie Mendenhall for their work behind the scenes. Uh, We've had a long, long uh, uh, election 
a day and a half. And uh, we'll be back again at 2 o'clock with more. Thanks for being with us today. I'm Bill Nygut. In the meantime, take care. Stay healthy. Go out and get a flu shot if you haven't had one now. And maybe a COVID booster while you're at it. See you all at 2. Bye-bye.